We're in the second week of a new series on the great early families of the Bible, the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're calling this sermon series Family Ties because the truth is that families are tied together in ways that can be life-giving and can also be knotted and difficult. Last week, we introduced this series by looking at the call of Abraham. God came to this one man, and he said, leave your home, leave your comforts, drop whatever plans you have for what your life is going to look like, and follow me. It took an incredible amount of faith for Abraham to listen to that voice, especially as God gave him very little information about where he was taking him. In fact, there was really only one thing that God told Abraham you're going to have a lot of descendants. That was the one piece of information that informed this call. Abraham, I can't tell you much else, but I'm going to tell you one thing. You're going to have a huge family. Your descendants will be more numerous than the grains of sand. They'll be more numerous than the stars. That is the one incentive that God gives him. Abraham, I know this is hard. I know I'm asking a lot of you, but I promise you this one thing. You're going to be the father of entire nations of people. And yet 10 years go by, and he and Sarah leave their home, and they trust this promise, and there's no child. And they begin to do what I think anyone would do, doubt. I mean, I think up to this point, they've been pretty patient and and pretty faithful. But even for them, the point comes in which they begin to say, are we fools for believing this promise? That is the backdrop for our reading today. And this is what you need to know. Abraham and Sarah have been in Canaan for 10 years waiting on a child And they are not young. If if the Genesis is to, to be believed, Abraham is in his 80s, Sarah is in her 70s. The light of hope has begun to dim when one day they receive a surprise visit. Listen now to God's word. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet him, meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is your wife Sarah? And he said, she is there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women, 
So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh, yes, you did laugh. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to take in your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, that we may not only perceive your wisdom, but live into it through Christ our Lord. Amen. This story that we read is endlessly deep. So today I'd like to extract just three points of many points we could be making about this, but I just want to look at three things in this passage. Number one, the pain of being childless. Number two, the challenge of surrendering control. And number three, the hope that only God can bring. So first, I want us to look at the pain that Sarah feels. When we are introduced to Sarah in Genesis 11, she is described with a single sentence. Sarah was barren, for she had no child. That's all we're told about Sarah, that she was a woman who can't get pregnant. And of course, in a way, this is so reductive. It reduces Sarah's identity to this one fact about her, that she is barren. On the other hand, it gets to a truth that the way women found identity in the ancient world was by being mothers. This is the way they exerted power and influence. It's it's the way they got recognition from society. And so to be denied this status could be incredibly frustrating and disappointing and shameful. And even as much as we've progressed as a society, there remains a stigma on childless women. The other day I was listening to a TED talk by uh, an English writer named Judy Day. She points out that this stigma against childless women has been seen through time in the words that have been used for childless women, words like hag and witch and spinster. And then she makes the point that even today in England, the the word that that is used to describe older women, all older women, is granny. Did you hear that? Maybe he thinks his granny is here in the uh, congregation. And she, she makes this point that to call a childless woman granny is to reduce her identity to this one fact of whether she has ever bore children. And you can imagine how much worse it was in the ancient world and therefore how difficult it was for Sarah for both cultural and personal reasons. Was there a social stigma? Absolutely, but it was also personal for her because she wanted a child desperately. In fact, it was the promise of having a child that lured her and Abraham out of their home country, following God to an unknown place. They went to that place and they waited and they waited and they waited and no child came. And what happened is that Sarah became cynical. She became angry. She blamed God. She blamed herself. She is so frustrated that she decides to take matters into her own own hands. She goes to her husband 
with a terrible idea. Abraham, since I can't get pregnant, take Hagar, our slave. Have a child with her. Maybe then I can be a kind of mother. Of course, Abraham is equally to blame because he says, you want me to sleep with someone else? Uh, Okay. And nine months later, Hagar gives birth to Abraham's first child, whom they name Ishmael. Predictably, things don't go very well in the household after that. Because what happens is that a kind of triangle forms, a relational triangle. Hagar, who even as a slave now has some power because she is pregnant, remember how important giving birth was, she begins to resent Sarah. Sarah is then even more frustrated. She blames Abraham. She says, this is all your fault, forgetting, of course, that it was her idea in the first place that Abraham sleep with Hagar. Abraham doesn't want any responsibility, and he just says to Sarah, you can do whatever you want to with Hagar, which is another terrible decision. Even though Hagar is pregnant with his child, he washes his hands of her. And Sarah, in her despair and her humiliation, She first abuses this pregnant woman, and then she drives her out of the house. Hagar will return to give birth, but when her son is a child, Sarah goes into another rage, throws her out again. This time, Hagar does not return. And as far as we know, Hagar never sees Abraham again. As far as we know, Abraham will never see his son Ishmael again. Abraham and Sarah remain together, but they are deeply wounded by this experience. And at the center of all of this drama is a painful irony that in their efforts to enlarge their family, they've actually made it smaller. The big picture is that the original dream is slipping away. They came to this new land because they believed God's promise that they would give birth to nations of people, but now they are old and they're tired and they're cynical. They're jaded about their marriage. They're jaded about life. They're jaded about God. How do we know this? Because of what happens one day when three unexpected visitors show up at their tent. The Bible says that it was a hot day. Abraham is sitting underneath some oak trees, trying to stay cool. He sees three men approaching the good nomadic Bedouin that he is. He immediately shows them hospitality. He invites them to sit under the tree with him. He fetches some water. He washes their feet. He goes to Sarah. He says, quick, make some bread. He then goes into his herd. He finds a calf to slaughter for food. He sets the food in front of them. These three men then ask an unusual question. Where is your wife, Sarah? Well, how did they even know her name? And then when they go to Sarah, they seem to know all about the promise that God made to them because they say, Sarah, when we return next year, you'll be a mother. At this point, we know these are not ordinary people. They know too much. These are angels who have been sent by God to reaffirm his promise that they will have a child. But here comes the most important detail of the entire story. What happens when Sarah hears this news that she will, in fact, become pregnant? She laughs. Before she can even consciously think about it, she laughs. 
It's the most wonderful detail because laughter, as we said in the children's sermon, laughter can mean many things. And in her case, her laughter is an expression of pure cynicism. It's a laughter of someone who has grown sarcastic because they're so tired and they have so much pain in their lives. And she knows immediately that she shouldn't have done it. The angel said, you laughed, and she tries to deny it. No, I didn't. But it's her words questioning the angels that give us all the information we need because she asks them this question. After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? What does she mean? What is this pleasure she's referring to? Well, kids, cover your ears. She's talking about sex. Sarah knows exactly where babies come from, and she's admitting in this moment that she and her husband don't have sex. They probably haven't had it for years, and that tells us so much. It tells us, first of all, that they're not even trying to get pregnant. I mean, they're they're blaming God for not giving them a child, but they're not even trying. How is God meant to give them a child if they aren't intimate with one another? But there's a deeper issue here. The fact that even the thought of being intimate with her husband makes her laugh sarcastically shows us how broken their marriage is. Now, you might be asking, couldn't God just immaculately conceive a child? I mean, after all, he did that with Mary and Jesus. And the answer is, of course, he could have. But what kind of a home would that be to raise a child in? You see, God doesn't just want to give a child to a couple who have stopped loving one another. First, God wants to repair this marriage. Now, the fact that one year later they do have a child means they have become intimate again. It means that this child, Isaac, is the product of a healed relationship. And that shows us that God doesn't just care about the number of children that are born. He cares about what kind of home children are raised in. He doesn't just want Abraham and Sarah to be parents. He wants them to be happy parents, loving parents. I mean, after all, he's raising up an entirely new nation of people, and he wants these people to be his his chosen people who know him and love him, who learn to be generous and humble. So what Abraham and Sarah had to do is to give up trying to control everything. I mean, that's what the entire Hagar story is all about. They didn't trust God. They decided that they were going to take matters into their own hands. They were going to force this promise to happen not caring about the impact on this other human being, Hagar. And the more they insisted on their own way, of course, the farther away the promise got. On the other hand, when they learned to let go of control and learn to love one another and forgive one another, a child came. There is a powerful lesson in that that God can do what we cannot do. And the more we try to exert our will, the less room there is for God to operate. But when you can trust that God knows what he's doing, you can receive the gift of hope. And that's my last point, the hope of God. Something amazing happens when Isaac is born. 
Sarah looks at this beautiful baby, this child she's been waiting for all of these long years, and she says this, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Of course, on one level, she's hearkening back to that other laugh. But what she's saying is that God took that cynical laugh and he transformed it into the laughter of joy. Her first laugh was sarcasm, it was exhaustion, it was bitterness. But now, her marriage has been healed. Her relationship with God has been healed. Now she's a mother not by her own efforts, but because she learned to trust God. And so her laughter is the laughter of surrender. And we know this because of what she says next. She says, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Meaning God can do anything. Who would have thought that God could do such a thing? But here's the proof. The proof is nursing at her breast. Here's the proof of what happens when we learn to surrender and to trust God's power. Every now and then, I will meet someone who is truly wise. And and I say this to differentiate wise people from smart people, because there are lots and lots of smart people in the world, but there aren't as many wise people. Now, I also say that, please excuse me, but I, I think this is a truism. Young people can't be truly wise. I mean that in all love and kindness. Because to become wise, you have to have lived through things. You have to have suffered a lot, honestly. Wisdom doesn't come from books. Wisdom comes from experience. To be wise, you have to reach a point where you have tried everything your way and realize that it all fails, and finally you've decided to just let go. You say, I've tried everything except trusting God, so that's what I'm going to try now. Now, the interesting thing about the wise people that I have met in my life is that they laugh a lot. They don't take themselves too seriously. There's a humility to them. And I think it's because they have been through so much pain and they have lost so many things in their lives that it has brought them to a place where they stop trusting in their own power and abilities and they put their trust in God. That's what we find in Sarah. She has been through so much. She has been healed from so much suffering, and it's brought her to a place where the most natural expression of this humility is laughter. And I think it's tied into a sense of wonder, because she says, who would have guessed what is possible when we trust in God? My goodness, why did I try to be my own God for so many years when all along God was there trying to heal me? I think there's an irony here in this scene that although Sarah is very old, her heart is young. Here's the most amazing detail. She and Abraham decide to give this child the name Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. Isn't that wonderful? This child is the product of a healed marriage and a healed relationship with God. Now, his life is not going to be easy, A little foreshadowing, we're going to talk about that next week. But for this moment, let us enjoy the wonder of what God can do when we trust him. When you can reach the point of surrender, 
The gift you'll receive is a life-giving laughter. Let's end in prayer. God, we thank you for your power and your mercy. We ask that you would open a space of healing in our own hearts, that we might be made wise through the work of your love. Amen.